if the price five years ago was 100 for a machine, and now to replace it, you have 200, you are only allowed to write off to depreciate 100. But you need 200 to replace a machine. We call that phantom profit. And we hear all the time from automotive companies and others, they cannot finish the cars because one component is lacking. I talked to, to a hidden champion from uh, southern Germany. He said we are getting 200 components from China and assemble them here into the final product. If one component is missing, we cannot finish the product. And, and that tells us there is a big risk in these complex global supply chains. That's why we will see more local production to diminish this risk. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am back talking with and learning from Herman Simon. Herman co-founded the world's number one pricing consultancy and wrote a fabulous book called Hidden Champions. We've talked to him before about this updated version of that, Hidden Champions in the Chinese Century, but today we're talking to him about his new book called Beating Inflation. So we'll dive into a couple of chapters in that book. He wrote his doctoral thesis back in 1978 on the last time we had hyperinflation. So a barrel of oil then went in 1973, went from $2.80 to $12 and then $37 in 1974, a 12 times increase that drove inflation sky high. And here we are, having recovered from that, we've had 30 years of about 2% global inflation. And now we've got some time where we'll probably be at 5 or 6% once we normalize the global supply chain issues and normalize for COVID and normalize for the Ukraine war. So today, we're going to talk to Herman about how do we tackle this inflation? What do we need to do? How to train the sales team? How often to put up prices? He thinks looking at the consultancy business that when they look at clients and they look at increased costs, on average, their clients are able to get about 50% of their price increase back from price increases themselves. They're looking for about 25% efficiency gain. And somehow they've got to eat the rest or find the rest. And that will drive up automation globally. It'll probably drive up a surge in outsourcing or offshoring of work globally. But also there's tricks to be had around managing your sales team, managing the leaky bucket. As ever, when I talk to Herman, he's got just an amazing grasp of detail at his fingertips. And uh, we dive into two or three of the chapters of his book. So great conversation. I always learn a lot when I'm talking to him. I'm sure you will too. Hello, I'm Herman Simon, 
founder and honorary chairman of Simon Kutcher and Partners. We are the world's leading price consultancy with offices in 30 countries, 45 offices. And uh, one of our hottest topics currently is inflation and how to deal with it. We've spoken a couple of times before, so thank you for coming back on to talk about this red hot topic. And I've been using your analogy from the last time we spoke about gold and Roman togas and handmade suits. Um, so that I don't butcher that, maybe could you explain what inflation is to everybody again? This concerns the core or the root of inflation. When you ask people in the street, what is inflation? Uh, they say prices are going up, uh, products are uh, getting more expensive. But that is not the real core of inflation. The core of inflation is that money loses its value, or more precisely, our paper money, what we call fiat money. Fiat comes from the act of creation. God spoke Latin and said, fiat looks, be it light. And the central bank <laughs> says to paper, be it money. If you take a different kind of money, namely gold, for once, uh, one ounce of gold, you could buy a custom-made tunica 2,000 years ago. And today, for one ounce of gold, you get a custom-made, tailor-made suit. So the products, uh, the goods have the same value. What is declining is the value of our money. And that has very concrete uh, consequences. For instance, like perishable food, you have to get money as quickly as possible and get rid of it as quickly as possible. So it changes everything in the, in the business process if money loses its value, if money becomes a perishable good. And you've been studying this for some time. Do you have a personal view or does the company have a view? Or are there economists that you, whose opinion you admire that you got a sense of how long inflation might stay high for? It stayed low for 30 years. Will it stay high for 30 years, do you think? Yeah, probably not for 30 years. Uh, in order to answer this question, we have to go back to the roots and the causes of inflation. And there, we should distinguish two categories. The first category is uh, corona, uh, bottlenecks in the supply chain, uh, also the Ukraine war, which drove up energy prices. This cause is going to disappear within one, two, three years. We see already that the oil prices have been declining. But the second category is the expansion of the money supply. If we take the case of the UK, the money supply in the last 10 years since the crisis in 2010 has gone up about three times. In the same time, the cross domestic product of the UK has only gone up 27%. So it means too much money is chasing too few goods. And uh, it's impossible uh, to cut back the money supply to this balance of money and goods. That will take years. Otherwise, countries, banks would uh, come into big trouble. So I expect 
a duration of the inflation of five to 10 years, similar to what we experienced in the 1970s. Not on the current level. In October, in the UK, it was 11.1%. It may go back to somewhere between five and eight, but it will stay for a couple of years. Rather, 10 than five, but not 30. And so when the economies or governments around the world responded to the coronavirus pandemic with massive quantitative easing, was it inevitable that we would get inflation? It's uh, only a question of time. As such, it was inevitable. And uh, quite a few economists, which I respect because they're realists, they said already two, three years ago, inflation will come. We don't know when. And one uh, economist said it will come abruptly, very quickly. And that's what has been happening. It came within half a year starting in uh, last year, and, and then it was already at 7, 7 8% in, in the spring of this year. Now it's at, at 10 or 11. Um, and of course, the stimuli by the governments added to this push. So that is connected to the expansion of the money supply because they finance these stimuli with uh, money they, they essentially get from the central bank. Not all countries had the same level of quantitative easing. And so is inflation a global thing or is it a country thing? So if you, if you chose not, I, I, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, when you go out for dinner and there's 10 people, you know, either everybody orders whatever they would normally have ordered or they go, do you know what? I'm only going to be paying a tenth of the bill. What is the most expensive meal on the menu? I'm going to have that because, <laughs> because this is going to be the cheapest night out ever. Because look, somebody over there is having a salad. That's brilliant. I will definitely have the Chateaubriand. Is the same thing true here? If, if you've gone big as a country in quantitative easing, do you, do you pay all of your own penalty? And if you decided to do no quantitative easing, are you still going to get inflation? Does it balance out around the world? It's a global phenomenon, but uh, the, the decree differs very much. A very good example is Switzerland. They are rather in the range of 4 to 5% because they have not done the same quantitative easing. They have controlled their money supply and uh, they have a more stable currency. Of course, one problem coming from this is that the Swiss franc is more expensive now for other countries. So Swiss goods are more expensive, which um, impedes their, their exports. And another case is Japan. But Japan is a, a very special case. They have had deflation over the last 30 years, essentially. And the, the main root of their problem is their, their very unfavorable demographics. Unlike the European countries, they have no immigration and uh, the Japanese society is uh, aging very, very quickly and old people spend less money. So they have a different uh, situation in their society. But even there, it's going up uh, gradually, but on a, on a still low level compared to, uh, to Europe and the United States. And because you probably have these numbers at your fingertips, how is it in Germany? And what did it look like from the outside when the shortest serving prime minister in history uh, tried to destroy the British economy in 24 hours? Yeah. Germany is, of course, as far as money is concerned, part of the Eurozone. So Germany has as such no control over the money supply. 
But of course, they ran very heavy stimulus programs where they got some money from the central bank. So Germany is practically on the same path as all Eurozone countries and very similar to the UK. Our most recent inflation rate was 10.7%, in the UK 11.1%. That's not a significant difference. Of course, what Liz trusted is a little, a little strange, and Sunak does the opposite, or the, um, the, the finance minister, uh, the, the chief of the exchequer. And uh, it, it really, uh, the UK was taught a lesson from capital markets uh, when you looked at, uh, at the degrading of the, the, the British uh, debt and bonds. But it was quickly corrected, and that shows that the British democracy is functioning. <laughs> Excellent. So your new book, Beating Inflation, out a couple of days ago. Yeah, last week it came out. Fantastic. An agile, concrete and effective corporate guide. So how much of this is you going back and saying, we know this is true from last time and how much of it is, is do, you, it, it, do you think this cycle of inflation and recession is different to the past? Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of uh, very important differences. <laughs> One difference is that today no acting manager has experience with inflation from the 70s because the people who were in charge there are all retired or, or, or passed away. I have, by the way, experience. I wrote my uh, doctor dissertation exactly in 1976 when we were at uh, the climax of the inflation. The the driver of the 1970s inflation was uh, the explosion of the oil prices. So you, you must imagine a barrel of oil cost $2.80 before 1973. Then it went up to $12 in 74, and then again in a second step to 37. That was uh, about 12 times more within a relatively short period of time. Now we have many, many important things which are different. Uh, one is digitalization. Uh, digitalization means that we have much higher price transparency. It's more difficult to increase prices because at your fingertip, you can compare prices for hotels, for airlines, for whatever you, you want to know. The other point is we have globalization. Global uh, countries are much more interconnected. You ask, is it a global phenomenon? Yes, it is a global phenomenon with some differences uh, between countries. And we have a number of factors like Corona, uh, the global supply chain problems. I mean, it's, it's amazing if uh, a ship collides in, in the Suez Canal half of the German economy cannot produce their products. That did not exist 50 years ago. And then we have the Ukraine war, um, which, which has a strong impact, especially on, on gas and uh, oil prices. And uh, this cumulation of, of several inflation drivers is also a very, very big issue. I want to try and pick up a couple of, dive into maybe a couple of chapters in the book. Maybe you could talk about the toughening up the sales force. I thought that was really interesting because so often I, I do meet salespeople who don't believe their company should actually be charging as much as they charge already. So now that we might have to push through some price increases in a structured way or multiple small price increases in a structured way, 
getting the sales team to be able to have difficult conversations feels as though it could be key. Yeah, the, the poor guys of the sales force. <laughs> Look back at the last 30 years, we had an average inflation rate of actually less than 2%. This meant you went once to your customers and asked for a moderate price increase of 2%. That was it in the average, once a year. Now we have 10, 11%. You have to go to your customers every two months and ask for a price increase of between 2 and 5%. Actually, you have to ask more to get what you, what you really need. Even under the price-stable conditions, price negotiations were very tough, especially with food retailers, with automotive companies, etc. Now you can imagine that life is becoming much tougher for the sales force. And I, I have two, essentially two points, two approaches to deal with that. One is you have to better educate your salespeople to communicate value. Because if you are able to communicate value, the customer may accept your price increase. And second, simply to tough toughen them psychologically through role plays, videos, etc. Uh, I, I just talked to the CEO of a large paper manufacturer uh, who makes, corrug uh, makes corrugated uh, board. He said, even my most experienced salespeople, these are mostly salesmen, are demoralized. It's, it's uh, very tough fights. It's inimical. And they have to go again after two months and ask for the next price increase. It's, it's unavoidable because the cost increases are there for energy, for the raw materials. And uh, if a company is not able to pass these cost increases through to the customer, at least, say, 50% of the cost increases, it will not survive in the long run. And I suppose alongside that, you've got, uh, you've got a section on the leaky bucket, uh, which I really liked, which is the who's giving a discount and what proportion of, yeah, yeah. of, of the price that you set, you actually get, which, you know, I think I suspect people might have thought about the giving the price increase and we've got to get the sales team out more often. Um, and is your, is your view that although it's a difficult conversation, it's easier to have four times a year than once a year? Would, is, that, is that what you're saying to your clients? Yes, that's clearly my recommendation. And that has two, two reasons. One, you must avoid uh, to, to uh, run after the cost wave. If, if you lose three months, six months, then the result of your year is destroyed. So you must actually try to do it simultaneously or, or come before the cost wave. And so you need frequent price increases. Things change every week, every, every day. You have to adjust quickly and, and frequently. And the other point is, by that you avoid to have to, to do very big increase. Actually, a baker who has a small baker who has four um, outlets, he said, I always was too timid, procrastinated, and did the price increases too late. And then I had to increase by, by 50 cents for one bread, and there was big resistance from the customers. The customers were annoyed. Now I do it in steps of 10 or 20 cents, and the customers accept it. So it's better to do it four times per year 
at, at smaller steps instead of one time per year in a, in a, in a big chunk. Okay. And so going back to the, uh, the leaky bucket, do the discounts that you talk about, did they make sense before when, infla- uh, when, you know, when inflation was 2% and make less sense now when it's 8 or 9%? Yeah, these complex discount and special condition systems, they have developed over, over time. In one case, for large food manufacturer, we counted 70 different discounts and special conditions, etc. And they, they make sense, and that's also a, a point for improvement. If the customer gives you something, it means you offer a discount and the customer orders a bigger volume. You offer a discount and the customer picks up the products instead of you delivering them. Uh, the, the customer keeps a larger inventory in order to be able to service uh, their, their customers better, etc. So uh, what one should try is uh, to establish a give and take system and not just to give discounts uh, for nothing. Uh, but it's, it's difficult to abolish the historically crone discount systems. And they are different from sector to sector. Um, An interesting thing which I experienced also from very small companies, from my electrician, in in Germany we we had a system which we called Skonto. The supplier, the vendor, offers you 2% reduction of the price if you pay within seven days. And that had disappeared over the last years because the interest rate was so low that that didn't make sense. Now it's appearing again. And I think that makes sense. You give a discount, but the customer pays you immediately. You get your money earlier, can invest it. Uh, So give and take should be the principle in in these leakage, or we call it sometimes waterfall uh, systems with the the large number of discounts. The other thing that I thought this is interesting is you know you've got sort of volume discount and logistics discount and special discount and then you've got the then there's a whole load of stuff which is not at a company level but is at a product level and actually i would say i find it quite common that clients don't know their either their client customer profitability if they're a service business or a product profitability if they're a product business and so they probably don't have the granular detail that they should have, or that they certainly could have around around their products and the discounting level and and actually where they're making money. And where they've put in place discounts in the past that they haven't taken out. And actually they put they might have put them in for the right reason, but maybe, you know, trading conditions have moved on, something else has changed and yet the discounts are still still in place. That's Absolutely true. I would say for the still for the majority of, of companies, especially smaller firms, that they do not have transparency of their own system of, of discounts. We call it sometimes a discount jungle. For instance, we find often in our projects that the rule that larger customers uh, or larger volumes should get higher discounts is not implemented is not observed, often simply because they don't have the information. But it has been improving. More companies have better uh, systems, customer relationship systems, or whatever it is, to get transparency there. And that is also a a very important point for improvement. But we should also not uh, uh, hide 
that there is a substantial amount of deception going on. For instance, the salesperson often tries to hide some special discounts he or she is giving. Um, so it's not easy for the management to really find out what's going on on the net-net base or the netissimo base, as we call it. What you really get, what is ending up in your, in your cash uh, register, uh, in, in complex delivery systems, customer differentiation, many segments, that's not so easy to find out. That's very often our job as consultants to create transparency in, in that regard. You, you talk towards the beginning of the book about profiteers of inflation. Who do you think is going to try to profiteer? Yeah, the biggest profiteer is the, the government, the state, because they have huge debt. And of course, they pay back the debt in devalued money. And if it's long-term debt, the devaluation, what they pay back is even bigger. And everybody who owes money, who uh, got uh, mortgages or, or uh, credits last year for 1%, fixed for 10 years, they are profiteers of, uh, of inflation because they pay back their debt in devalued money. So in, in less real terms than they, they got last year. If somebody bought a house, built a house last year with a very good financing, he or she is a lucky guy. Uh, but they, they win twice, don't they? I mean, it's, it, you know, it, going right back to the beginning in your example of gold, your house is an asset. So I'm guessing we're not, you know, we're seeing a reduction in average house prices in the UK at the moment because interest rates have gone up. But over time, you'd expect, I guess, to see those house prices go up relative to the fiat currency. Uh, that's true. And uh, they win actually twice. First, on the front of the mortgage, the, the low interest rate. And uh, at least currently, the prices for, uh, for construction services are much higher than they were two years ago. That's mostly due to bottlenecks uh, in the supply chain. That will disappear. But at the time being, uh, when you ask uh, for, for services from a construction company, from an electrician, uh, a sanitation company, uh, they have delivery times now of... Uh, I, I ordered a gate, a, a movable, a digitally movable gate. I ordered it in January. It's even not finished now because they say they don't get the electronic ships for the, to, to control the gate. They have a huge volume of orders, which they still have to work off. That is, by the way, also a, a buffer against a coming recession. Well, and that, I guess, management of the chip crisis has been suggested as the reason why the CEO at Jaguar Land Rover has, has resigned last week, because some car manufacturers manage that sort of chip crisis way better than others. That's, yeah, one of the reasons, <laughs> probably, yeah. You talk about different types of profit, because we've talked a little bit about, you know, put your prices up to protect your profit, but you've got, is profit not just profit? Profit is not just profit, and uh, that uh, is also an important aspect of inflation. Let's assume a company is successful in, in increasing its prices by 10%. Then revenue will go up 10%. They report 10% growth next year, and profit may also go up 10% or a little less because the costs have increased. So the world seems in order, but in real terms, if you correct for the inflation, nothing has been improved. The real profit is the same. And there are an, a couple of other 
profit implications. For instance, the depreciation for machines for long-term uh, infrastructure can only be on the purchasing price. Say, if the price five years ago was 100 for a machine, and now to replace it, you have 200, you are only allowed to write off to depreciate 100. And, but you need 200 to replace a machine. We call that phantom profit. Uh, but this phantom profit has to be taxed. It should not be taxed uh, substantially because we need the 200 to, to pay the machine. So you have also to be very uh, cautious on your uh, accounting side, try to build hidden reserves in order to compensate for this gap from the, from the phantom profit. Uh, this tells us, by the way, that inflation affects all business functions. It's not only a matter of price increases of uh, the sales force. For instance, if you think of the current situation of purchasing, under normal conditions, the role of purchasing is to get the products we need for our production at the lowest possible prices. But now the challenge is to get them at all. If you buy electronic ships, as a purchaser, you are not in a very strong position. Or if you want to have a craftsman, he says, okay, if you don't pay higher prices, I have 10 customers waiting outside. So the, the role of purchasing is now to, to guarantee at all that the, the production can function. If they cannot get the products, uh, the, the whole uh, system collapses. Uh, it's, it's currently almost the most critical function purchasing to get the products we need. And we hear all the time from automotive companies and others, they cannot finish the cars because uh, one component is lacking. I talked to, to a hidden champion from uh, southern Germany. He said we are getting 200 components from China and assemble them here into the final product. If one component is missing, we cannot finish the product. And, and that tells us there is a big risk in these complex global supply chains. That's why we will see more local, local production to um, diminish this risk. And I suppose that's where you look for government policy around tax breaks on, you know, to your example of the machinery, you know, I, I, I bought it for 100, it's now 200. If I can get a tax break on investment in infrastructure, then that helps go some way to getting people to invest, which is good breaking the cycle of negativity around uh, future and, uh, and hope and also helps people close that gap between what they've, what they've got in terms of depreciation and the new asset costs. Yeah. Yeah, from an, a purely economic point of view, uh, we would have to write off, depreciate based on replacement costs. That, that would reflect the real consumption uh, of a long life uh, product like like a machine, but uh, this is not going to happen because this would reduce uh, the revenue of of the state dramatically. When we look back at the seventies, are there any? Did some smart governments? Did Germany do something differently and clever to the UK, or are there are there some countries that did better in the seventies that governments could learn from? I think countries or companies which have indispensable products always do better. And I, I would like to combine that with uh, a concept 
of postponables. If we distinguish between products you need every day, pharmaceuticals, food, and products uh, whose purchase you can postpone, like furniture, machinery, uh, etc., the postponables are most heavily affected by the in, by the by the recession, and also. Um, for instance, uh, in 2009, we had an, an excellent hidden champion, Trumpf, global leader in laser machine. They had 150 unsold machines in their yard, in their, in their courtyard. And the second aspect is, are these products indispensable? The products of Trumpf are indispensable. And uh, when, when the recession was over in early uh, 2000, they were sold off within, within three months. And uh, we, we combined at that time, we, we discussed the following question, which I think sheds an interesting light on this. What is a typical German exporter? We took Trumpf, a leading hidden champion in, in, in laser machines, and a, a Japanese typical investor, we said, is Toyota. And then the question came up, what would happen if we have no more Toyotas as of today or no more Trumpf machines as of today? If we had no more Toyotas, nothing would be happening. The, the capacity of the automotive industry is big enough to replace the production of Toyota. They would buy Nissan or Opel or, or Volkswagen or uh, whatever. If all Trumpf machines disappeared off today, the global manufacturing system would collapse. So if, if you relate these source, postponable, indispensable, you, you get some insight which companies, which countries are most strongly affected or less affected by uh, recession, inflation, etc. And, and this implies another, another very important um, con uh, concept, which we haven't touched yet, pricing power. Do you have the power to increase your prices? And let me give you an example which everybody will understand. Let's assume... Apple increases the prices for the iPhone by 10%. How much would they lose? Maybe 3%. In theory, that's the price elasticity. 3 divided by 10, the price elasticity would be 0.3. Now, if Huawei or Samsung do the same, they increase their prices by 10%, I would say they will probably lose 30% of their customers. So price elasticity would be... 30 divided by 10 would be three, three, 10 times higher. And that's pricing power. Apple has pricing power. Some other companies have very small or no pricing power. In, in your example with Toyota, that must be the same thing because it's replaceable by VW or whoever. Toyota is replaceable. Trumpf is especially the most sophisticated product of Trumpf. Just to give you an example, um, the really beyond rocket science is what we call extreme ultraviolet lithography. These are the machines made by the Dutch hidden champion ASML. They have a monopoly in the world and they're not allowed to deliver to, to China. And the key component there is the laser amplifier by Trumpf. This machine has 453,000 parts. It creates a temperature of 220,000 degrees Celsius on the spot on the ship. That's 40 times the surface of the sun temperature. And it shoots 
50,000 tint drops per second on the electronic ship. So if you have such uh, a unique product, uh, you have pricing power, you are indispensable and irreplaceable. How many of your hidden champions have uh, Trump versus Toyota, do you think? I would say 50% because they're very specialized. I talk of deep tech as opposed to high tech. Apple is high tech or SpaceX is also high tech. Everybody knows it. It's like a mountain which is visible. The hidden champions is deep tech underwater. You don't see them. Nobody knows what a laser amplifier by, by Trump is. Or uh, there's a second component, uh, the optical system by, by Zeiss, which is even more complex than the, than the Trump system. It's, it's also going into the ASML, uh, e extreme ultraviolet lithography machine. Um, they have reduced the distance uh, in, uh, on the ship from 195 to 13 nanometers. They can put with the optical system 56 billion, 56 billion transistors on the surface of a fingertip. And uh, there are people say that's not rocket science, that's uh, far beyond rocket science, <laughs> uh, much more complex. Uh, of course, not everybody is playing in this league, but this deep technology, which you don't see, people have no idea what's going on in the production process, in the value chain of, of, an, of an iPhone. And uh, another uh, um, number, which I probably have not mentioned earlier, Guess how many suppliers does Apple have in Germany? 10. 767. Wow. 700 and you don't know any of them. Yeah. They're all deep technology, invisible technology. 767 Apple suppliers in Germany. And so if you're, if you're a deep tech company and that gives you pricing power, take it. Because actually this inflationary thing uh, for the next few years will be fine and you'll ride it out. If, you're, if you don't have pricing power, then I guess you've got to start managing your business cyclically, which you may have done if, you've, if the business has got enough corporate memory, you'll know what you've done because you've done it you know, four or five times in living memory of the CEO. But for some businesses, this will be their first cyclical downturn. Yeah, of course, if you do not have pricing power to compensate for the cost increases, the only way is that you work on the cost side. In, and in any case, the cost side must contribute. Our experience from Simon Kutcher is roughly the following. You can compensate 50% of the cost increases on the price side by increasing your prices. Cost efficiencies, increasing cost efficiency must contribute 20 to 25% and you usually have to swallow something. Uh, under, under these conditions, you will not uh, make the same profit typically. And it's also interesting, uh, what can you do on the cost side? Um, there are two cost drivers, materials which you have to buy or services which you have to buy and your own labor. On the purchasing side, you cannot do much. You cannot say, I pay you only half the price uh, for gas or oil or whatever it is. So you have to work mostly on the labor side. 
Labor again has two components, wages and volume of labor. Wages, you cannot do much, especially with the talent shortage, uh, too few young people coming into the market. So you have to work on the volume of labor. That means you have to replace physical labor, manual labor, human labor by automation, robotics, etc. So that will be the main stream to pursue reducing the amount of labor through digitalization, technology, uh, more efficient processes, etc. And probably uh, if people can offshore to lower cost. One of the things that struck me as people started to say, well, do you know what? I'm not going to go back to London. I'm not going to go back to the, the center of Munich. I'm not going to go back to New York. My company's going to pay me the wages that I got before I went to the office, but, but I'm not going to go back. And it's like, mm. is it possible that you're replaceable by somebody in Kuala Lumpur or Malaysia or Singapore or India or the Philippines? Because if, if it isn't, you no longer need to come in and we're only dealing with you asynchronously. We may, as, we may as well spend a lot less money on you. And so I guess that'll automation and uh, moving workloads to lower cost, US, lower cost countries. That applies even to high qualification jobs. Many diagnoses in radiology, uh, x-rays, uh, CTs, etc. are today done in India. Because with uh, digital communication, you can send the pictures to India, they can analyze it and, and send the diagnosis back. Um, and uh, we, we see a shift also in international exchange from material exports, imports, to digital, to service exports, imports. And uh, of course, this is a different kind of Offshoring, you don't have to build a factory somewhere in Asia. You just send the data over to Asia and they handle it. Uh, we have call centers all over the world uh, in, the, in the lowest uh, cost places, obviously. I heard, for instance, for a call center in Thailand, and they are hiring German speakers because they deliver services to German companies in call centers who are much cheaper than a call center in, in Germany. That's, <laughs> you, just, that's obvious. you just start thinking, my immediate thought is, how many German speakers are there in Thailand? It just, it just seems like that's quite a narrow <laughs> oh, so, seam. No, there are actually quite a few. I, I know many people who are retired or who have a, a, a holiday apartment. It's, it's more than you think, but oh, I mean, they may, they may so it's not 100 it, or 50, not uh, uh, 10,000. Uh, but I found this case very interesting, a call center for German speakers in Thailand. Because <laughs> immediately I'm thinking it's Thai people who speak Germany, but then you say it's German speakers who live in Thailand. Ah, yeah. okay. That's yeah, and, and that's an ideal job, which can, you can do part-time, so... You throw in a couple of hours per week and get some additional money. Yeah. Or, you know, one of, uh, one of the uh, Carlos who used to uh, work for us here with, uh, with clients as an accountability coach is now working for one of our clients in the Philippines. And so, you know, transform, transformed his quality of life, Southampton and the weather in Southampton to the weather in Cebu. I mean, we are doing the same. We are talking via via Zoom or a similar software. 
in the last two years, I've given, say, 200 speeches, presentations without traveling. That was not possible 10 years ago. Now, it's standard. Being there in person is still, I, I, I flew to Slovenia to give a personal speech last week. That's different from doing it digitally. But if you, uh, I, I gave a speech in Amsterdam two weeks ago, half an hour, and I was on the road on the autobahn 11 hours. And I will not no longer do that. I will do it digitally if I have to travel 11 hours to deliver half an hour speed. It must be a very important event for me to go there in person. So life is changing due to technology. And you, we were talking before we were recording, you've, you've had a coronavirus splurge of books. Uh, you've updated Hidden Champions, Hidden Champions in the Chinese Century. You've written True Profit and now, uh, and now Beating Inflation. Yeah, imagine... Let me assume, just as a rough number, that I gave 50 speeches per year before Corona. And at the minimum, I would say with travel per speech, it was one day. So that's two and a half work months, which I simply spent traveling. And in two and a half months, I can write a book if I, I know something about the subject. Actually, the inflation book I wrote in six weeks because I could uh, rely on, on so much of my experience, cases from our consulting practice, etc. And uh, so this is also an extreme productivity driver that we save so much time uh, by avoiding these excessive travels. Good for the planet as well. Of course, under environmental aspects, that's, uh, I sometimes went to Shanghai again, for a half or 45-minute uh, talk, was uh, 25 hours in the air, uh, consumed about two tons of uh, carbon dioxide, and this is avoided. Herman, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Maybe that we can do much more by communicating digitally than I thought before. If you had asked me in our consulting business, what are the two most important success factors? I would have said, first, of course, competence is knowledge. That's, that's obvious. Secondly, I would have said personal interaction with the client, being on the client side, meeting the clients in workshops, in meetings, also over lunches and uh, dinners. Now that was all over as of March 2020. And even in 2020, we grew 0.1%. In 21, under more or less the same conditions, we grew 20%. So our business has been flourishing without all these travels and personal interactions. That is a real lesson. Uh, it, it may be different for first encounters, but for ongoing business relations, uh, 50% will be replaced by digital meetings instead of moving your body and an airplane or a car a uh, thousand kilometers across the globe. And does inflation, does that give you, it must be grist to the mill for a pricing consultancy business. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> you're, you're one of those people who might benefit from an inflation we didn't invite it. I still would prefer a time without inflation. But uh, for our business, with uh, our specialty in pricing, uh, it helps, yes. Okay. Um, and so we've uh, briefly mentioned True Profit, Hidden Champions. 
in the Chinese century and uh, defeating inflation. But what, what else have you been reading recently or what else do you think people should pick up and, and have a skim through? <laughs> One of the recent books was um, When McKinsey Comes to Town, which tells all these stories about McKinsey. Uh, I, I think it's a little too critical. Uh, and McKinsey is blamed there for uh, things which, for which they are not really responsible. And then... My last book, which I finished yesterday, is a biography of a Swiss businessman who became very successful in, in Asia, who worked for some years in Japan and Thailand. And I love to read biographies or autobiographies because they tell you so much about how the world works, uh, how people fail and are successful. So uh, I also have, of course, my own biography. Uh, where is it? Uh, what was the... Many Worlds, One Life, which I can recommend. <laughs> I would also be happy to copy from uh, a remarkable journey from farmhouse to the global stage. I come, as I uh, told in one of our er earlier episodes, from a very small farm from the Middle Ages, and I, I think you can learn so much, especially as a young person, from these stories, uh, how people developed, how they, where they failed, where they became successful, how they adjusted their course to uh, events. Uh, so autobiographies are for me a real treasure trove. Um, that, what's the name of that book of the Swiss? That is my great right but I don't know whether it's available here. It may be self-publishing. My great right. Who's it by? Philip. Philip with one L and one P. Bechtold. B-A-E-C-H-T-O-L-D. Brilliant. We'll get we'll get a link somewhere on the in the show notes. Herman, as ever, it's been an, an absolute pleasure. And every time I talk to you, I I, uh, my knowledge, my knowledge of business in the world goes up a notch. So thank you for sharing. My pleasure. Thank you. With you, Dom, it's different from a typical interview where somebody has pre-formulated the questions. You are a discussion partner and uh, I like that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.